Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team. It's already been a great day here at the Lord's house, and we're so glad that you're here worshiping with us. It was great hearing y'all sing, too. Y'all sounding nice today. It's always just a joy uh, to be able to get together with the Lord's people on the Lord's day and sing, to read scripture, to pray, and to look now at his word. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Gospel of Luke, looking at chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 26 through 38. And I've titled this message, You're Expecting Too. You're Expecting as well. Last week, we looked at the announcement, the pregnancy announcement that Gabriel gave to Zechariah that his wife, who was barren, would have a baby. This week, we see a very similar story, and there's actually a lot of parallels that we'll pull out between last week's story and this week in looking at the birth announcement, the pregnancy announcement to Mary, who would have all sorts of interesting ways and creative ways. Many of us have probably wrapped up a little onesie or something like that and given it to a grandparent, said grandparent-to-be or something like that. Or maybe you have a little picture with your toddler wearing a shirt that says, you know, big sis or big brother, whatever it is. I'm sure all of you Pinteresty types of people have all sorts of cute ideas and ways that you can do that. Believe it or not, I don't hang out there a lot uh, during the week on Pinterest. I know that's shocking for most of you. Those things are all great. They have their place. Pregnancy announcements are very exciting. But what you don't ever really see is the announcement telling somebody else they're pregnant. That doesn't tend to go well when you ask someone if they are pregnant or if you tell someone, hey, you're going to have a baby. But that's exactly what we have here in our stories this morning. My friend uh, Dave Kakish, who was here, uh, he was here with us in October, he shared the story of his kid, <laughs> this was just recently, I asked him if it was okay if I shared this story, but he put it on social media, so it's a fair game. So Dave was, he, they had their pastor, their current pastor, and his wife over for uh, dinner. This was pretty recently, just a week or two ago. As they were finishing up, his five-year-old walks over to their pastor that they're having over for dinner, punches him in the stomach, and says, now you're pregnant, it's going to be a girl. <laughs> didn't really go over that well. <laughs> and that's just not how that works. <laughs> you don't really tell somebody else you are pregnant. But that's exactly what happens here, maybe not the punch part. That's exactly what happens in two stories. And it's amazing. It's amazing what's going on. I want to review a little bit from last week and see how this story unfolded to Zechariah, the priest who's in the temple of God, he receives a visit from Gabriel, and then we'll see how that parallels over with our story this morning of Mary, who is not in the temple, but she's in Nazareth, and she also receives a visit from the same angel, Gabriel. Last week, here's what we did. We looked at you're expecting, and we saw God's servants, and this was uh, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. We learned a few things about them. It says that they're blameless, they're righteous, just seems like they're trying to obey the Lord the best they can. Zechariah is a priest. He's chosen by Lot to enter into the holy place on this very, very special occasion. And it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And he's the one who's supposed to burn the incense before the Lord in the holy place. If you're familiar with the temple and the tabernacle, there was a holy place and then a most holy place. So sort of a sacred place within the sacred place, the most holy place. He wasn't allowed in there. He wasn't the high priest but he was allowed in the holy place, and that's where he would make sacrifice. 
or not sacrifice in this case, but he would burn the incense to the Lord. Well, he's there and he meets an angel named Gabriel and Gabriel says, your wife who is barren and y'all are older, you're gonna have a baby. And this is very reminiscent of some of the stories that we see in the Old Testament, like Abraham and Sarah, his wife who's old and ends up having a baby, Rebecca. Um, There's a number of these stories and we looked at those last week. So we saw God's servant, we saw God's message that you're gonna have a baby and he's not just gonna be any baby, he's gonna be the forerunner, the one who prepares the way for the Christ, the Messiah. I love the song we just did, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It just captures something of the longing and the tension that Israel felt in the first century, just wanting desperately for the Messiah to come. And then all of a sudden, he's here. There's an announcement, he's here. Years of silence, hundreds of years of silence. He's here, he's coming. There's gonna be a baby who's gonna prepare the way, and then the Messiah himself is going to come. It's an amazing story. So the message is John's going to come. But Zechariah pushes back on the story, says, um, how is this going to happen? He has his doubts because he's old, his wife is old, and they've never been able to have kids. So how's this going to happen? And then we see at the end that God's grace is sufficient. God does exactly what he said he was going to do. He goes home after serving in the temple for his time, he goes home and his wife does conceive and she hides herself for five months. Very interesting end to the story. Well, that's where our story picks up this morning. So that was verses five through 25. Now, what I've done and the way that we're gonna look at this is we're basically copying over the outline from last week because the stories are so similar. If you just chart them out, if you do some sort of a literary analysis, you can just sort of line them up. This one corresponds with this, this first corresponds with this, and they're so similar, just reading the story one after another, and Luke's designed it that way. But there's a key difference here, and it's how Mary responds to the angel, and we'll discuss that. So I've just changed one word from credibility Zechariah has questions about this whole situation, and Mary, we see, she trusts in the, in the angel's message. So let's talk about God's servants. Let's read our text. So we're going to read verses 26 down through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And came to her and said, Greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David." And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, and he will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. God's servants. 
What a fantastic story. Can't wait to dive in further with you here. So there's some obvious similarities between last time's story and this one. There's the angel Gabriel. Now, lest you get confused on how significant maybe this is, it's not like Gabriel is showing up on every page of the scripture. In fact, it's pretty rare. We haven't seen him since Daniel's time, hundreds of years ago. There's only two angels that are named by name in the Bible. It's Gabriel and Michael. And so for him to show up and make an announcement was absolutely spectacular. And it shows that there's a new era dawning in Israel. Something new is happening So Gabriel shows up. There's obviously a pregnancy announcement, just like the Zechariah and Elizabeth story. And there's a prophecy about ministry. There was a lot of prophecy about the ministry that John the Baptist was going to have before Jesus came. And so there's a lot of similarities, but there's some crucial differences as well that we'll get into as we move along. So just a few maybe helpful notes on these verses is from verse 26 and 27, just a few things that I put on the screen for you just so we could be on the same page here. A few things to note. When he says the sixth month, um, if you said the sixth month, most of us would think, what? June, because that's how we do it. We number, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, starting in January, typically. And so the sixth month is actually a reference in this particular story, in this particular case, to the sixth month since he visited the last person. That was Zechariah. So she is now in her sixth month. Remember, Elizabeth is staying hidden for five months until, presumably, her pregnancy starts to show. It says, you've removed the reproach from me among women. And so she's she's sort of secluded herself until the baby grows and she starts starts to show. And so it's in this sixth month that the angel appears to Mary. That means that Jesus and John, their relatives, we learn that a little bit later in the story, and they're, they're growing up, and they're only about six months apart um, or so. So they're roughly the same age. Isn't it funny how your age, when you're really young, it matters a lot, like six months for a baby? You know, a six-month-old versus 12-month-old, that's a big deal. And then that starts to get less and less and less, and then you get to like 26, let's say, and it just don't matter anymore. It just doesn't really matter until you get really old again. Like, I'm 94 and a half. Like it, it all of a sudden, that's very, very significant again. So it's on the front end and on the back end. Months matter. In the middle of life, you're like, yeah, it doesn't really matter all that much. You can vote. It's all the same. But here we are. These two are going to grow up, and they're roughly the same age. So in the sixth month, now let's talk a little bit about Nazareth. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, this is interesting. Where was the encounter that happened with Zechariah and Gabriel? Where was it? You can talk in church. It's okay. It was the temple in Jerusalem, right? If you were going to meet with somebody, if you were going to meet with God, that was the place to do it. The temple, it was, it was all of Israel's history is built around the temple. What's happening at the temple? God's presence in the temple. There were wars fought just to defend this temple, this piece of real estate. Very significant, very important. Still is in the Jewish mindset today. This is a very, very important piece of real estate. And if God was going to meet with his people, well, of course it was going to be at the temple, right? 
But here's the angel Gabriel, and he appears to Mary in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was not exactly a metropolis. Nazareth was a place, it was sort of a, a country town, just a place that nobody really thought a lot of. This was really interesting. I, was, uh, I met with a friend not all that long ago, and we were talking about a trip to Israel, and he was kind of showing me like places they go and how you, you know, like setting up a trip to Israel, and I, it, was, it was really interesting. And he started talking about Nazareth, and he said, yeah, you don't really want to stay there. There's, he goes, there's just not much to see there. You know, the hotels are kind of run down, that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Like something, some things never change. I've never been there. I can't speak firsthand, but it is kind of interesting. I was trying to think of a parallel with us today, and inevitably, if I start talking about places in North Florida, I'm going to offend somebody. Um, so uh, I'll talk about where I grew up um, in Jackson, Alabama. Uh, Jackson, Alabama is just north of Mobile, about an hour. I uh, lived there most of my elementary days. And there was a little town just south of Jackson, Alabama. And in Jackson, Alabama, we looked down on the people that were from McIntosh, Alabama. You didn't want to be from McIntosh. In fact, I had some friends that worked at the ER at one of the hospitals in Mobile. And I didn't know this till years later, but when they would say, we have a Macintosh in the ER, it means somebody got stabbed. Um, so that was kind of the, just the place. So if you're ever driving up Highway 43, just, just keep rolling until you get up, get through there. I think I can pick on Macintosh fairly safely this morning in the room. I don't know that Nazareth had necessarily the same reputation for being violent, but it had that type of place. It was that type of thing. That's why over in John, when they say, you got to come meet this guy uh, named Jesus, and they said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Like, from Nazareth. Really? I'm always fascinated when we watch the Olympics, and sometimes you'll see these little small towns, a little dot on the map where somebody's from, and you're like, wow, world-class Olympic athlete from there? You know, from, from that place? And that's what Nazareth was. There was nothing special, nothing special at all. But here it is. Here's a map of Israel. I don't know how much of that you can see, but I'll just point out a few things here. So here's Jerusalem um, right here uh, with the red dot. And if you go north, uh, Jesus spent a lot of his time in the region of Galilee. Uh, Mark particularly notes that. We'll see it in Luke as well. Nazareth is a little town right here. And so we're going to see the visit of the angel there. Uh, then we're going to meet Jesus, Jesus down in, um, down in uh, the birth, actually happens down here in Bethlehem when the census is being taken. And so they travel uh, down to Bethlehem. That's where they had to go to be registered. And then we'll meet him in Jerusalem. And then not long after that, they end up fleeing to Egypt um, because of the decree that came down to kill all the, all the children, all the male children, because there was a promise of a king that's going to come. And so he's trying to eliminate political threats. So that's the context and story of what's going on um, there in, uh, in the first century. So uh, Bethlehem, uh, or Nazareth rather, it's a place of little consequence about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Now let's talk about what is, else is going on here. We say that it's the sixth month, it's in Nazareth, and then Mary is a virgin. 
Mary is a virgin. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about this, obviously, Mary and her virginity, and the Catholic Church and others would teach there's a perpetual virginity uh, to Mary. There's no indication of that anywhere in the text, and in fact, I would say other verses like Matthew 13, um, Mark, it talks about Jesus had other siblings. There seemed to be no indication that there was a perpetual virginity to Mary, but at this point, she had not known a man, and that's literally what verse 34 means when Mary asks, how's this going to work? Literally, in your translation, it might say, I am a virgin, and if you're looking at one of the Bibles that has a reference on it, uh, it actually says, I do not, I have not known a man, Um, and so it's virginity in the truest sense that we're talking about. She knows where babies come from, and this doesn't fit. How is this going to work? Now, this is different than the other stories because the other stories, there's someone who's older, who's barren, the, and a birth announcement. But it's not a miracle in the same sense and way as it's something that seems unlikely. This is something that is impossible. And so that is the promise. She's a virgin. And we'll see more about that as we move on later in the story. Let's talk about this as well. She is also betrothed, or some say betrothed, to Joseph. And this is not quite engagement, uh, not quite the same thing as engagement. It's kind of a level beyond engagement. So it's somewhere between being engaged and being married. All right? So I, I have a, let me read a definition of this from one of the resources that I found helpful on this. It says this. Marriage consisted of two distinct stages, engagement followed by the marriage itself. This is a first century understanding of marriage. Engagement involved a formal agreement initiated by the father seeking a wife for his son. Now, stop right there. This is typically how marriages worked. The father would seek a wife for his son. Kind of interesting, too, when you're younger, you're like, arrange marriage, that's a terrible idea. And then you get a couple of kids, you're like, meh. Not, not that bad of an idea. Like, a little bit of control over this whole situation. Like, it doesn't seem like a terrible plan, really. Sorry, girls. So the father would initiate this, and that's, that's how it worked. Upon payment of a purchase price to the bride's father and a written agreement and or the oath by the son, the couple was engaged. So this was a very formal process, a legal process that they would enter into that we are going to be married. There was money exchanged and it was a very formal thing. Now this wasn't the wedding itself, this was the betrothal, this was the engagement as we would say it, but it's just, our word engagement just doesn't capture all of that. Goes on to say, an engagement was legally binding And any sexual contact by the daughter with another person was considered adultery. The engagement could not be broken save through divorce. And the parties during this period were considered husband and wife. And so there's other references on that. We see this uh, when Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant. It says that he was a righteous man and he didn't want to embarrass her, but he wasn't going to marry her either. He said he was a righteous man, so he was going to divorce her, put her away quietly, not bring public shame, but just to quietly call this thing off. And the angel visits him and says, this is from the Holy Spirit. This is from God. Don't do that. And he doesn't. And that's, we don't get a lot of glimpses into the life of Joseph, but we do there. So Mary is, in fact, a virgin, and she is, in fact, betrothed to her soon-to-be husband, Joseph. 
Also, we learn that they are from this one, this descendant is going to be from the house of David, and we'll see this chapter of Luke and how that all works. Just, just know this, there was a promise, a long-standing promise, that there was going to be one who was going to sit on the throne of David, and it was going to be a perpetual kingship. A forever king was going to come through the line of David. They weren't taking applications for this. It, it didn't work that way. And so she is chosen to bring this one into the world. It's amazing. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, grace with God. It's an amazing statement. You found favor with him. I noticed, noted last week for us that whenever people meet angels in the Bible, they hit their face in fear. We've kind of turned angels into something that's very domesticated and soft and you know, kind of cute and fluffy. Not in the Bible. Whenever you see an angel, they are bad dudes and they are scary, imposing characters. And so Mary is fearful. His first message to Zechariah is, don't be afraid. And here, after he greets Mary, he tells her, don't be afraid. Mary is found favor with God, not because of her, but because God is gracious and kind. Grace is not limited, is not limited supply to receiving mercy and forgiveness. Finding grace with God means that God entrusts her with something great to do and bear. I found that quote so helpful. Finding grace with God means that God entrusts her with something great to do and to bear. We need to understand the privilege that Mary finds herself in. It's costly, as we'll see in a moment, but it's a privilege all the same. So God's servants. We see Mary. Joseph isn't mentioned in this text directly, but we also see that he's a righteous man as well, and he's willing to do whatever God has for him to do as well. So let's look at God's message that's contained in verses 31 through 33. Let me read those for us again. So this is after the greeting, after he tells Mary, don't be afraid, you found favor with God. Verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's amazing. So a few things that we get here. I was helped by a couple of resources on this, and this is so helpful summary of what's going on in this message. We see that there's the mention of the virgin birth, as we've already talked about. There's a naming, and again, the naming is removed from, it's usually the responsibility of the father to give a name. In this case, the name is given already. A pronouncement that he's going to be great, that he's going to be called the son of the most high, he's going to be of the throne of David, and he's going to have a never-ending reign. Now let's talk about these last two just for a moment here, of the throne of David. You'll remember that when God led the Israelites out of Egypt, this was in 1400s or so, God led the Israelites out of Egypt. They go into the promised land eventually after a little wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They take possession of the promised land and for 400 years they live there under a system called the judges and this is how Israel is ruled at the time. Eventually they call out for a king and they say, we want a king like all the other nations. And what did God give them? A king like all the other nations had. Gives them Saul. 
Saul ends up being a bad king. After Saul comes David. David's the new king, best king Israel ever had. After a series of years, David is on the throne. He's a good king, not without conflict, but he's a good king. And eventually David says, we're living in nice houses. We've got this place kind of established, an established economy here in Israel. But yet the Lord is still living in this tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle that he instructed them to build after they came out of Egypt? God's place, God's house is a temporary house. We're in permanent housing. He's in a temporary house, this tent. And so he says, I want to build a temple for God to dwell in. But God instructs him through the prophet, you're not going to be the one to build the temple. Good idea, but it's actually going to be your son who's going to build the temple. But guess what, David? I'm going to do something for you. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. It's an amazing promise. And this is what's called the Davidic covenant. This is in 2 Samuel 7. A few verses from that. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is, you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. This would end up being Solomon, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So your kingdom is going to continue on. And then we have this promise. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, just notice the similarities here. And think, if you're a first century Jew and you knew your Bible, like Mary did, we know that from what she does in the Magnificat, 2 Samuel 7, 17, 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of all his kingdom, there will be no end. So it's an obvious, obvious bouncing off of the covenant promise that was made all the way back to David. I think the first century readers of this would have immediately clicked that in. They immediately knew exactly what was going on. The Bible, the New Testament, Luke's gospel is so full of allusions and language and vocabulary. It was just the air they breathed. They knew all of these things. They knew the stories. And so when he started talking about this, they knew. They had been waiting a long time for this promise to come to pass. A thousand years or so since it was given to David, at least 900. And that's why I mentioned a minute ago, this O come, O come, Emmanuel this long expected longing to see this happen for hundreds and hundreds of years they had been waiting on a good king to be on the throne well now it's going to happen and mary is the one that's chosen to bear the messiah it's an amazing amazing promise by the way just a couple of things on mary it's likely that she was somewhere between 13 and 16 years old um, at this time now, this makes some of y'all really nervous, right? Um, somewhere around 13 to 16, just in the culture, that's when you would most likely be betrothed to be married to someone. She's young, so that's probably 
the stage she's at. And when we get to her reflection, her song of reflection in the next chapter, or the end of this chapter, actually, uh, what we're gonna see is just an absolutely amazing way that she had digested the Old Testament and the scriptures and the way that she's able to just pull these things out and reflect on the promises of God and how she gets to be in this privileged position to bring Jesus into the world. It's really a cool reflection. So they're bouncing off of this. They knew this is the covenant promise that's being pushed forward. And Mary is there in the middle of it thinking, how did I find myself in this position? What in the world? How did this happen? And so I think her question in verse 34 is very different from Zechariah's question. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? since I haven't known a man. How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, some have tried to poke holes in the virgin birth of Christ and say, well, he wasn't actually born a virgin um, because this was just speaking to that time. Well, they later did consummate the marriage and that's when Jesus was born. I don't think that's what Mary was thinking. She didn't understand the angel in that way. And so I, I don't think that holds any water at all. Let's contrast what happened with Zechariah. Zechariah's question was really, how can this be? Why? Because we're old, my wife's old, this isn't gonna work. Mary's question is more of a question of wonder. How will this be? Not can this be, it's how will this be? Because nothing is impossible with God. I think she got it. I think she totally understood and got it. I wanna say just a couple more things about the virgin birth here, and I think you'll find this interesting. I'm trying to restrict myself, for the most part, as I go through the Gospel of Luke, to not bringing in everything that all the Gospels have to say about everything. Because I think each Gospel writer is writing, and they have their own mission and, and their own intention in writing. But I've got to show you what John thinks of this, uh, just because it's so interesting and I think helpful for us to consider the issue of the virgin birth. So we'll talk about the virgin birth sometimes when we talk about Christ's sinless nature and how the virgin birth is necessary to preserve Christ's sinless nature. Many people point that out. I understand that, and I think it's an important point. I think there's another point, though, that maybe we don't always think about. Think about this with me. When you read John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, I think the real significance at least part of the significance of the virgin birth, is that Jesus didn't begin in the same way that other humans began because he couldn't begin because he always was, all right? Now, I know, you know it's 11.15, y'all are starting to get a little hungry and your mind is you know, starting to churn a little bit. Just go grab it, wherever it is, go grab it, reel it back in, focus, okay? Everybody back? Okay. Talking about the eternality of Jesus, the significance of the virgin birth is he could not be conceived and created in the same way because he already existed. That's the beauty of the incarnation. The incarnation, the word became flesh. You can't be incarnated. You are only human, always. Jesus took on flesh. That's the significance of it. Jesus existed in eternity past, always existed, stepped into the stream of humanity through the virgin. He was crucified. He was buried, he was resurrected, he ascended, and he went back to eternity future. So Jesus always existed. I think that's part, at least, of the significance of the virgin birth. 
This is why it's so crucial, I think, for Christian doctrine and understanding. We hold to that around here. We hold that it's actually true, just like it says. And I think part of our understanding of the person of Christ, what we would call Christology, is really developed by our understanding of Jesus and the virgin birth. All right, so that's my take and takeaway on the virgin birth. Let's move on. We're talking about God's reliability. Mary's question isn't so much a question of if, it's a question of how. How is this going to happen? How are we going to do this if I haven't known a man? Verse 35, and the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. He'll be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. So we have two unlikely candidates to have a baby. One is barren and the other is a virgin. Gabriel, in essence, tells her, don't worry about the details. God's going to do this because nothing is impossible with God. He's got this. You're going to have a child. Mary ends her reflection. Or verse 37, nothing's impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She's totally at peace with what God has said through the servant Gabriel, through the angel Gabriel. We see God's grace coming through. We see that she's a willing participant in God's story. I want to offer you a few reflections on this story. It's an amazing story. I'd encourage you to dig deeper. Really, any of these phrases, Luke is just saturated in the Old Testament. You can really double-click on each one of these phrases, and you can just find a mountain of Old Testament references that lead us and lead him. This, the Old Testament was sort, of the, it was sort of the word bank that he had in his mind as he's expressing these stories, and it's just rich with Old Testament imagery and even the vocabulary and the language used to describe God. How do we draw anything from that? There's certain parts of this when we're going through a story it's a story. There's certain parts that we are to imitate. There's certain parts that we can't imitate. Obviously, parts of this story that we can and can't imitate. So let's, what can we grab out of this? One, I just wanted to remind us that God uses all types of people. I tried to draw a comparison and just draw such distinct pictures between what happened with Zechariah and what happened with Mary. You have an old priest with an old wife, a barren wife, He's in the temple. She's from a priestly family as well. They're sort of the establishment as far as the priesthood goes. They're part of the system. Then you have this young girl. She's unwed. She's betrothed, and she's a virgin, and she's in this little town, this little nothing throwaway town. God accomplishes his purpose through all types of people. I hope you find that encouraging. We can't all, not everybody in the world can be the smartest, can be the brightest. Not everybody can, but we can all give the Lord everything that we have of us. He accomplishes his purpose through all types of people. Next, God doesn't need our help with strategy. All right, I want you to think about this for a second. There's a couple of things that happen here that just strike me as really odd. And the more I think about them, the more odd they actually strike me. When Zechariah goes into the temple and he sees Gabriel and he receives this announcement, this announcement was the Isaiah 40 prophet. This is what they had been waiting for. 
And you know what Zechariah did when he went out? Nothing, because he couldn't talk. Isn't that amazing? Your wife's going to have a baby. What does she do? She goes and hides for five months. Like, would you have drawn it up that way? If you were writing up the press release for this, you know, God has spoken again in Israel, but we don't know a thing about it because the prophet that saw the angel, he can't speak and his wife is hiding. We'll get back to you eventually. Developing story. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Or the virgin birth itself. I mean, isn't this prone to some misunderstanding? (laughs) Some confusion? Some scandal? I think it is, and I think you see it actually a few different places in the Bible. Particularly, there's a place where Jesus locks up with the Pharisees at one point, and he says, they say, we're of our father, Abraham. Where are you from? Oh, the virgin birth. It's not stated, but I think it's implied. I think there was scandal all around this. It's open to misinterpretation. God, I think maybe we need another way to do this because a lot of people are just going to misunderstand what's going on here. But God doesn't need our help with strategy. And we can see sort of the theological implications of that. God's wise. He knows what he's doing. So he doesn't need our help with strategy. Just be faithful. And that leads us to the last point. God wants our faithful obedience. Just be faithful. Zechariah doubted. Mary trusted. But they both ended up accomplishing God's purposes in the end. They both did. Mary's song a little bit later indicates just how overjoyed she was to participate. But we should know that I'm sure Mary understood something of what she was signing up for when she said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm sure she understood something in that moment of what she's actually signing up for. A.T. Robertson, a scholar, uh, he said of this passage, it is not unlikely that some sharp tongues in Nazareth made her feel the force of this biting slur. So it's not unlikely that people were talking. Oh, people are talking in Nazareth. Mary, you got to answer for some things. Joseph, what's wrong with you? You're starting out your marriage, letting your wife get away with this? Really? Well, scandal aside, They say, this is what the Lord has done. We're going to trust him. God wants our faithful obedience. Over and over again, the story we see Mary becomes sort of a paragon of trust, a picture of trust in the Lord. Show up at the birth, Luke records, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Simeon's prophecy about Jesus, it records, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, specifically, Joseph is there too, but he speaks specifically to Mary here, He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Well, that sounds great. Verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, signing up to obey the Lord, it doesn't always mean that you get the easy life, right? As we've joked about before, some people think that being a Christian is just a walk in the park. It is. It's just Jurassic Park. It's not going to be easy. It's a day on the beach, Normandy Beach. It's not easy. You're drawing a bullseye on yourself when you follow the Lord. You're going to get derision. They knew this. They understood this. It was open to interpretation and confusion. God doesn't need our help with strategy. 
He just wants us to obey him. Just do what he wants you to do in the place that he wants you to do it. I don't know how this intersects with everybody's lives here this morning, but you may feel like you're just swimming in life right now, just trying to keep your head above water, trying to make it all happen, make it to the Christmas parties and paint your smile on and go, you know, make people laugh. Maybe you're trying to keep up with friends, finish end of the year projects, reports, sales, whatever it is. I don't know the entirety of your situation, but I know a lot of people feel really stressed out this time of year. I know that that's absolutely true, except for our students who just finished school and they're like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, we're chilled. The rest of us are trying to do some things this time of year. My encouragement this holiday season, just be faithful to the next day. Just be faithful to the next thing, whatever it is. It might not make a lot of sense to you how God's putting all the pieces together, but he's working it out. This puzzle fits together, even though we may not always be able to understand it. If you're here this morning and you have maybe questions, doubts, maybe you don't really know what to think, about Jesus being the Messiah, maybe he's a savior, maybe he's not, I would encourage you to speak to one of us. We would love to have that opportunity to talk to you. I'd also encourage you, if you're not ready to maybe take that step to speak to somebody here today, keep reading the Gospels. Read Luke, read John. Just keep reading your Bible. Seek it out. It's gonna become very clear, Luke's point. He wants you to know that Jesus is the Christ, and that's what we want you to know as well. Lord, thanks so much for some time that we can spend in your word. And what an amazing story that we see this morning. Your plan to save the world through this young girl, bringing Christ into the world, through this really unimpressive, we don't know a lot about her. We know that this young lady seemed to have a profound trust in you. She seemed to have a profound shaping by the word of God in the Old Testament and the prophets and the Psalms as we'll see in just a couple of weeks. We look forward to diving into that a little bit more. But Lord, she was just a, she was just a girl, and yet you bestowed your grace on her. What an amazing, amazing reality this morning. You brought your son into the world through such humble means. Lord, now as we get to enjoy this holiday season and just so much going on, I do pray for people that maybe they do feel stressed out this time of year. Maybe there's just so much happening that's unusual, so much disruption in the schedule. I pray for grace and peace for them. I pray that they would be able to relax and to trust you and to just walk in obedience and do the next thing in a way that honors you one step at a time. We do pray that that would be true. Lord, we pray for our church family. We pray for this weekend, this next weekend as we come and we celebrate. We remember in an even more specific way the birth of Christ and what you've done. And not just remember that he came, but to remember why he came so that we can be saved from our sins. We praise you for this time. We pray in Christ's name, amen.